Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm a member of the church here at Ebby. I'm quite a sleepy member of the church here at Ebby this morning, so bear with me. Um, we are finishing our series, I think, this morning in Nehemiah. Uh, we're looking at Nehemiah 13. Um, and we're going to see if this has got enough range to reach to the back. <laughs> Looks like no. So my two options here are either I can do the sermon from the middle of there, which feels quite tempting, <laughs> and you can all turn around, uh, or I can just make elaborate hand gestures to the back of the room. So I think we'll do that one to start with. How's that? Let's go on to the next one. There we go. Hi. Uh, I think we've pretty much covered that one now. Let's go on to another one. Okay, yes, a warning. Uh, so this is a roadmap for where we're going in the talk this morning. Uh, so if you're worried about the time, you can kind of tick off these symbols as we work through them. Um, the trouble is when I've been putting this together, so this is a very like step-by-step -step logic kind of talk. And each of those steps could be a talk or like a two-hour lecture, to be honest, in itself. Now, I'm assuming you don't want to be here for 30 hours any more than I do. <laughs> so we're going to go really fast through each of those steps. Um, all I'd say is if at any point you're like, oh, I'm not sure I quite followed that or I didn't really agree with that one or that one felt a bit flimsy to me, there is lots of stuff out there that you can go read, watch, uh, listen to, to kind of fill in the details around that. If you want to find those things or are struggling to know where to look, come and ask me and I can point you in the direction. You're going to get sort of the headlines this morning because um, I want to get to the end. Is that okay? Okay, thanks, Tim. <laughs> uh, right, let's go on to the next one. Yes, so if, like me, you haven't been in Ebby for like the last entire month, <laughs> uh, you're going to need some backstory before we read this last bit of Nehemiah. So very quick bit of backstory to the passage we're reading. Um, so Jerusalem, the holy city, the temple city, has been uh, desecrated. The, the people and the buildings left in ruins. And then a small group of dedicated uh, people dedicated to restoring it to the glory that it should have, um, have come back together with the resources to be able to do that. And they've embarked under the leadership of Nehemiah on this building project to get the holy city back to uh, the state that they feel like it ought to be in. And at this point, we're right at the end of the book, they've done that. Hooray. They've completed the building project, and they've had a big celebration to mark that, and they've had a big public dedication and declaration about how they're going to return this to being God's city, full of God's people, and this is going to be a place where God is honored. Uh, and that's kind of where we join the story in Nehemiah 13. So let's read it. Uh, I think it's quite a sort of spicy chapter this one and in some ways I find it quite funny so we're going to read quite a bit of it um, it is long though so I've skipped out some bits if you're following along in your own bible you'll be able to see the bits that I'm jumping over um, it's worth reading all of it but just for the sake of time uh, we'll jump through a few bits and pieces as we go okay let's have a look so 
Uh, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. I learned about the evil thing Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joida, son of Eliashab the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Okay, so there's a sort of long list of all the things that Nehemiah is cross about. Um, I think... The overall shape of that chapter and this story, I think, is, is quite clear. So they've, they've wanted to set out on this course of honoring God. The people have come back to restore the city, to rebuild the city, and to be a place where God is honored. God-fearing people um, honoring God in their actions and their lives and their city. And now, as soon as they've finished the rebuild... 
they stopped doing those God-honoring behaviors that they themselves had said that they were going to do. And so even after they had pledged, we're going to honor the Sabbath, no sooner had they got everything finished that they stop honoring the Sabbath. And they had said, you know, we're not going to bring fish into Jerusalem. And they bring the fish into Jerusalem. And all those different things in that list. So they had set out on a course of what they felt was God-honoring behavior. And then no sooner was everything in place, then they started, they stopped doing the honoring behavior and started serving themselves. It would be a bit like, uh, you know, you know how it is, you put your nice shirt on, you do your hair all good, and you take your partner on all sorts of romantic dates, you take them to the theater, you take them out to fancy places for dinner, because you want to show them that you honor and love them, and you want to spend your time with them, and you want to cherish them, and so you do all this fancy stuff to make sure they feel honored and cherished. And then no sooner do you get married, then you start, you know, sitting around in your pants till two o'clock in the afternoon, eating crisps with your mate Justin and playing GameCube till four in the morning. Just as a random hypothetical example of how quickly it's easy to go from careful honoring behavior to self-serving, not honoring behavior. So I think, I hope that sort of general shape is quite clear. And I think the sort of accompanying moral of the story, if you want to call it that, is also you know, we kind of get the gist of stories like that. Don't be like that, okay? That's, that's kind of what we're taking from this passage. Don't be the people in those stories that Nehemiah is crossed with. Don't be the guy that goes from honoring behavior to not honoring behavior. I think that's pretty, like, easy to pick up that gist. Okay, but uh, what I would say is when we say don't be like that, what do we actually mean when we say that? Don't be like what? That's all very well to say, don't go from honoring behavior to non-honoring behavior. But what does that actually mean? What lessons ought we to be taking from Nehemiah 13 about how to do that? So is it, let's see, like what level of do not do are we talking about here? Are we saying, Make sure you stay away from Tobiah and Sambalat and any of those bad guys that he name-checked. Like those specific individuals, Tobiah, who lived in Jerusalem however many years ago, make sure you, you today stay away from him. Is that what we're saying? Are we saying a slightly more general thing? You know, don't take fish into Jerusalem. That's what they got in trouble for. That was the non-honoring behavior. Let's make sure that we are not people who take fish into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Maybe it's slightly more general again. Maybe it's... Don't trade on the Sabbath. Like, that Sabbath is there for rest, and that they were using it to enrich themselves, and maybe that's the level that we ought to be looking at. Maybe it's the next one up. We saw it in that story. Maybe it's ban foreigners. Maybe that's the level that we ought to be taking from Nehemiah 13. Let's make sure there's no Moabites in Ebi on a Sunday morning. Maybe it's even more broad again. So he talked about Solomon and the patterns that he fell into. So maybe it's not so much about any one particular behavior, but maybe there's some pattern in the story of Solomon that we see in the pattern of what's going on in Jerusalem after the rebuild. Maybe that's what we need to watch out for. There's all sorts of different ways you could take that. All I really want to flag up this morning is, well, first of all, side note, it is always a choice. Right? If anybody ever tells you it's really clear what the Bible says, it's simple, it's obvious, it just means this, they're wrong. 
It's always a choice. There's always a decision to be made in our interpretation. You probably are feeling a hunch towards which one of those you think is right. It might be different from the people around you. It might not even be on that slide. Mine isn't. Um, the first thing is it's always a choice which things we're taking from any given story or passage we're looking at. So just realize that we're doing that. That's the first thing. Um, my choice, let's go on to the next one, is to go really high level on this. Now, if you want to come up and tell me afterwards, Ben, I don't like that choice. I wish you'd spent your 20 minutes telling me how to stay away from Tobiah and Sanballat. Absolutely, come and have that conversation with me. But I've got the microphone. It's my turn. <laughs> my choice, the choice that I am making is... Uh, that this is a the, the caution is to not be diverted. That all of these things, the honouring to not honouring change that happens in this story, is because they're looking at the, the world around them and seeing what the people around them are doing, and they're getting diverted from the decisions that they themselves had pledged to into the things that they see going on around them, and that that has drawn their focus away from honouring behaviour to non-honouring behaviour. So. I think the lesson I want to take from it is, is really broad, and that is, mind your surroundings. Be mindful of the things that are going on around you that might take you from honoring to non-honoring behavior. You with me so far? This is the step-by-step -step logic I was talking about. Okay, the trick with that is, surroundings change, right? And so the things that are around us depend on where you are and when you are. And so the surroundings for Nehemiah will be different than the surroundings for, I don't know, a 12th century monk in Germany or an 18th century landowner in America or a 20th century scientist in... Somebody give me another country. England, okay, sure. Keep it simple, keep it local. In 3,000 years' time, if we get to 3,000 years' time, the, the surroundings and the situation will be different again, right? So if the, if the general lesson is be careful of your surroundings to make sure you don't get distracted from honoring behavior to non-honoring behavior, we have to recognize that what those temptations and pulls and diversions might be will be different depending on who we are and where we are and when we are. So... The question is, what do we need to mind? As us here now, what is it that's going on around us in the place and time that we find ourselves that runs the same risk of dragging us from honoring to non-honoring behavior? Now, I reckon, possibly, as soon as I ask that question, for lots of you, 15 things are running through your head straight away, if you're, if you're listening. <laughs> As soon as somebody says, what is it about the world around us today that is at odds, you know, that, that God-fearing people ought to stay away from, that is not right, that is not okay, that risks taking me from honoring to non-honoring behavior? What, basically, what is up with the world today that is not okay and we need to stay away from? Loads of people, probably a whole like, list starts running through their heads. Oh, oh, I could talk for hours about this. Let me sit down over a pint and tell you all the things that are wrong with the world. What I want you to do is take a couple of minutes to note what those things are to yourself. Maybe talk to some people next to you and say out loud what those things are. So what are the things that first jump to your mind if somebody says to you, 
what is wrong with the world today? What is the terrible behaviors or the terrible trends or the terrible new developments that we need to be careful of? What are the first things that light up in your brain? You with me? Okay, so I'll give you maybe like a minute or so to get your first thoughts out down. You can write them on paper if you want or chat to people next to you. Go. Okay, I can feel the volume really rising. So before you get too far into and another thing territory, uh, if I could have your attention back, hopefully you can keep those percolating in the background. But if you've got a little list to hold in mind, that would be handy. If you're struggling to think of anything, don't worry. As always, the internet's got you covered. Uh, there's a whole meme that you can just search up. Let's have a look at the next one. Uh, if you just put in these words into Google, every day we stray further from God's light, you will find all the things that people think are exactly this, are straying further and further from how things ought to be. Banana bread beer? Outrageous. Maybe that's what it could be. Selling non-fungible tokens through Bitcoin and making nonsense profit off made-up things. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's bacon covered in chocolate. Maybe <laughs> it's... <laughs> No? No one excited for that? It's definitely American bacon, isn't it? Uh, maybe it's the outrage of somebody playing careless whisper in the middle of a club night. Whatever it is, uh, if you're struggling to think, you can always look that up. Um, but probably you will have an answer straight off the top of your head of what you think it is that we need to mind. Um, but here's my, again, my turn, my mic, <laughs> my suggestion. <laughs> Here, here's the thing. Here's one of the things that I feel most confident about that we need to mind. Um, I'm going to call it culture wars or tribalism. It gets that symbol because it's really toxic. Um, let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. Uh, so this is kind of a pattern uh, that I think is really rife in the world today and really at odds with the character of God and that really can take us from honoring behavior into non-honoring behavior. And what I mean by this kind of tribalism, culture wars, kind of rivalry, is this pattern where an insider group gets formed. These are the insiders. These are the okay people. These are the good, right, like me, acceptable gang. 
And then in opposition to that, an outsider group gets formed. These are the not okay people, these are the unlike, these are the unwelcome, these are the unacceptable. And then the outsider group gets presented to the insider group as a threat. So not just we're different, but actually this group is coming after you. And you, the insiders, are under threat from these outsiders. And that, in turn, creates a scenario where the insiders feel justified in being hostile and aggressive and um, taking an enemy stance towards that other group because your very survival is under threat. These outsiders are a threat and they're coming for you. Therefore, it's only right that you put your guard up and fight back. And this has a couple of side effects, one of which is... It's a way of stealing power, right? It's to, it, it ends up reinforcing power being held with the insiders and trying to take it away from the outsiders. Once these groups are established, it's a way of trying to centralize power over here. Um, and also another thing that happens is lots of harm goes unnoticed in the process. So as you get these more and more polarized groups, there's loads of people in the middle who get caught in the crossfire and literally suffer harm as a result of the sort of bombs being chucked back and forth between the insider group and the outsider group. But also what it does is it, by definition, creates separation. I don't know if you saw the little bridge lifting symbol down there. It creates separation between those two groups. It's designed to do that. This kind of tribalism is designed to make these groups more and more distinct, more and more at odds, and further and further apart. You roughly with me? So a really easy place to see this pattern is with like media coverage of migrants, of asylum seekers, of refugees, of people moving from one country to another. Uh, you don't have to look very far. You can go find loads of examples where this story keeps getting reinforced of, you know, we, the white British natives, are the good, safe insider group, and they, the everybody else, the Albanian gang leaders or the... Um, uh, there's all sorts of atrocious uh, terms that get used. You know, but they, the other, the outsider, they're not from here. They're the outsider group, and they are coming, right? They're coming to be a threat to us, and we need to keep our guard up. I think that's one place where you see this tribalistic pattern really strongly. Um, but you can see it in loads of places. Almost anything can be turned into... At one of these dividing lines for a culture war, an insider-outsider culture war. So, I mean, this is just off the top of my head. You can pick almost anything. Polite versus uncouth. We, the nice, polite, not swearing, not smoking, clean living insiders, are under threat from them, the roadmen on the corner with their gang signs and their vapes. Uh, or <laughs> we... The nice shirt-wearing, respectable people are under threat from the hoodie-wearing people who haven't even bothered to wash it before they stand at the front. <laughs> the old way, the good, old, safe ways, newspapers, letters, whatever it is, are now under threat from the new, the TikToks and the Snapchats and the whatever else they have now. 
There's, you can go back and see that pattern, by the way, all through the history of time. Once upon a time, newspapers were the TikTok, and, you know, everyone, I don't know, the chisel and stone people were mortified that the printing press had been invented. <laughs> the comfortable versus the struggling. Even this manages to get weaponized, this idea that, like, I've got enough to be able to cook my own food, therefore anybody who has to use a food bank is an idiot and a threat and is coming to make a mess of life, right? That they're the baddies and I'm the goody. Straight versus gay, an absolutely classic kind of way of saying, we the heterosexual insiders, we're the safe, well-behaved people, and they, the gay, queer community, they're the dangerous outsiders coming for us. The married versus single gets weaponized in the same way. From here versus not from here. Familiar versus unfamiliar. You can pick anything you like. Basically, they all come down to familiar versus unfamiliar. Like me versus not like me. It's a really powerful way to bypass people's brain, get into their threat response, and say, you are like each other. They're a bit not like you, so beware. And probably, if you've still remembered your list that I asked you to make earlier, Anything that you put on that list can be subject to the same division, right? I don't know what it would have been that you think is a danger and a threat in the world right now. They might have been trivial ones like banana bread beer. They might have been really serious ones. But anything on that list can get turned into this way of reinforcing an insider-outsider division, right? The banana bread drinkers are coming, <laughs> and we've got to be careful about them. So that's just to say, again, if you need more proof, I can provide it. I've done some work with a charity called Stop Funding Hate, who can literally give you the receipts of this and show you how the media in particular picks its targets at different times, amplifies the amount of negative coverage towards a group, makes them the enemy of choice for today, and builds up that division. Right? And then when they're done and there's enough enmity going on, they can move on to the next target. So, the first reason that I'm really confident that culture wars is a thing going on in the world today that we need to be careful of is because I'm really confident that it definitely exists. The second reason why I'm really confident that culture wars is a thing that we need to be wary of that can distract us from honoring behavior to non-honoring behavior. You following all this logic? <laughs> the second reason I'm really confident in that is because I'm so sure that it is at odds with the character of God. Uh, so, I could spend all day on this, really. I've picked a bit from 2 Corinthians 5 for right now, but I could talk for hours about this. Let's read this, and I'll maybe have a two-minute rant about it. This is Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 5, exactly about this thing. It's, it's subtitled in the Bibles as the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is like the opposite of this insider-outsider divide. It's bringing together. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That means we don't even, we don't, we don't look to that list of binaries. We don't look to that list of, are you comfortable or are you poor? Are you straight or are you gay? Are you my friend or are you my enemy? Are you like me or are you unlike me? Those superficial aspects of people are not their defining feature. 
We don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's quite a lot of big words, but what it simplifies down to in my head is this. If God's love got far enough to include me, what line am I going to draw to exclude anybody else? If the the grace, the, the, the whole story of God's love is of grace and mercy and inclusion and of healing a divide, of reconciliation, of bridging a separation. I was the outsider, and Jesus came and brought me in. There is no insider-outsider group. All. Christ died for all, and so Christ's love compels us to pass that on to everybody else. The message that has been committed to us is the message of reconciliation. I could talk for days about this. I'm just, I'm really convinced that a really key part of showing God's love in the world means showing the same mercy and grace and reconciliation that we have been shown. And I'm really sure that a thing that goes on in the world is there's a deliberate attempt to get us to be at odds with each other, to find enemies, to find people to hate, to find outsiders, to draw up lines, to say, I'm the inside and they're the outside. And it is anathema. There's my one big word for the talk. It is anathema to the character of God. So, very lastly, we started by saying this is a story about how to not be like Nehemiah 13, how to not go from honoring behavior to non-honoring behavior. I'm making the case that the temptation for us is to go from honoring God by showing reconciliation to not honoring God by falling into cultural wars and tribalism and insider-outsider divides. If that is right, how do we not be like that? How do we not be those people that look for division rather than reconciliation. Really, really practical tips, then I'm done. (laughs) Okay, number one, practical tip. Know your clique. Okay, so a big way that this insider-outsider division works is by reinforcing similarity and difference. And the more that you can be aware of this is the clique that I'm likely to fall into, the more that you can resist people's attempt to leverage that against you, right? So if you know that you're likely to, I don't know, hang out exclusively with fellow John Lewis shoppers who uh, went to university and drive Audis, I don't know, whatever it is. (laughs) If you know what your clique is, it's easier to resist that attempt to turn it into John Lewis shoppers are acceptable, Morrison's, absolutely not. Whatever it might be, okay? Um, If you know that your temptation is to only hang out with people your same age, then you can resist the temptation to have that weaponized. There's all sorts of ways that these lines can get drawn up. If you know which ones feel closest to you, you can do more to resist it. Second thing, know what power looks like. A big part of the toxicity of this insider-outsider division is it's a way of taking power away from those who already don't have very much. And we always like to feel like we're the ones who don't have very much power, but it's rarely the truth. (laughs) And so being able to take a step back and look at 
who actually has the power here? And again, in those, in those toxic media stories, it's so often made out like one or two individuals can be a threat to like 60 million people in the UK. And it's, it's, if you take a step back, you can see that it's a nonsense. And what it's really doing is trying to take power away from people who already don't have any. If we go back to the migrant example, if you are forced into a situation of having to take a boat across the channel to try and find somewhere where you can live without threat. You are not the powerful person in that situation. They are not the one coming for you. We are the powerful ones in that situation. And again, the more you can be mindful of that, um, God's kingdom is not about keeping power for ourselves and using it against other people. God wants to empower the disempowered outsiders. God loves lifting up the powerless. So the more that we can keep track of who's really got power here and be honest about that and not fall into the temptation of assuming that it's always not me, <laughs> um, the, more we can, the more we can stay in line with the character of God. And lastly, this is the goal of the reason those things help you is because I feel like a call on us today is to actively reconcile. In a world that seeks to drive divides between people, to keep the power with the powerful, to take it away from the powerless, to set people at odds with each other, to make us feel vindicated in ourselves and everybody else is the baddie, a call on Christians is to be active reconcilers, to look for the people who are being put on the outside, who are being marginalized, who are having power taken away from them, to look for the people who are having the finger pointed at them and told that they are not okay, and to find ways to honor and love and respect and show mercy and grace and inclusion and welcome and all the things that God showed to us, to them. Now again... Side note, temptation, people love to think that this means them, right? I'm, I'm the helpless outsider. Really, if you think about it, I'm the one that everyone's having a go at. They're all coming for me. It's almost never the case. Look for the people who aren't like you, <laughs> who that is happening to. Look for the people who are being put on the outside of you, who are being set at odds with you, who are different from you. Look for the ways that they are having power taken from them and see how you can seek justice and mercy and grace for those outsiders. You with me? Now, fun last twist. That's quite different <laughs> to the behavior that Nehemiah exhibited in Nehemiah 13, right? If you want to go back and look at that. If Nehemiah turned up here today and started talking like he does in Nehemiah 13 about what we should do here and now, me and him might get into a little scrap. <laughs> uh, but I think that's why it's so important. The kingdom of God is not a fixed thing. It is about being continually attentive to the nature and the heart of God and the nature of the world around us and looking for redemptive actions where we are. Um, and yeah, I'm just, I'm really sure that where we are the temptation is to fall into division and rivalry and hate. And the call is to fall into reconciliation and mercy and love. Uh, let's pray. Holy, loving God, thank you 
that your grace reaches far enough for us that though none of us deserved it, you made each of us welcome. You call us by name and you love us regardless. Help us to show the same love that we have been shown to the world around us. Help us to be wise about who is really being victimized and marginalized and how we can bring love and justice to a world that seeks power and rivalry. Jesus, we want to see your love, mercy, justice and grace brought to the whole world. Help us be messengers of your reconciliation.